0: This is the East TraumaCast. Hello, and welcome to the next TraumaCast on vascular trauma. I'm joined by my co-host, Red, an old friend and moderator for us. As tradition, I'll ask each of you to introduce yourselves and let us know where you're from. David, let's start with you.
1: Hi, I'm David Scarupa, and I'm at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville.
2: And Red? Hi, I'm Red Hoffman. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. And for us,
3: Hi, everyone. Uh, for us, Mad Beck, also from the uh, Division of Acute Care Surgery at the University of Florida in Jacksonville. Really honored to have David as my partner in practice.
0: Common scenario. A 25-year-old guy punches his fist through glass. For The first scenario, the ulnar artery is lacerated. Dave, what's your surgical approach? Can we explore ligate or do we need to repair the ulnar artery?
1: So my approach to the injuries, the vascular injuries in the forearm are to definitely explore. And I prefer a, I approach this in a stepwise fashion. I wanted, and I prefer to repair the injury if possible. I think that it's, in this case, the ulnar artery, which is usually the dominant artery in the forearm to the wrist and hand. I definitely prefer to uh, repair if possible. I think that it's a low-risk repair in the sense that if the if it goes down and we've tested the Palmer arches in the hand, it, it, it's essentially as if we've ligated it. We also have the opportunity to improve our skills and, and work on uh, repairing a vessel of that size or just the vascular techniques. And we never know when we're going to be in a position where both for named arteries in the form are injured, both ra- the radio and the ulnar artery and ligation is not a good option in that scenario. And we'll we'll be forced to have to do a repair or some sort of reconstruction. So
0: how do you how do you repair the ulnar artery? I mean let's say assuming we can like it's a straight laceration, right? And we can put the two pieces together, how do you do it? What what suture
1: do you use? In this case it's likely a clean laceration because of its mechanism. And in that case I would assess the edges and debride if needed, but probably not in this situation. And that's going to be a 6, if not seven, o oh, 0 uh, proline suture. I feel like
0: <laughs> beyond 4 I'm getting loops out.
1: That's well, definitely. Tough, then. <laughs> it, come prepared and have your loops. I have a, I, I wear loops for all of these operations. There are a lot of technical fine points to the repair for it to be a successful repair. And it's These are best done under magnification, so wear your loops. Good lighting is important as well. I wouldn't hesitate to have a headlight.
2: Can you go through a little of those finer points for us that are not vascular surgeons, what we need to be thinking about if we don't have a vascular surgeon available to us?
1: So uh, I I have loops, and I think any of us who are interested in performing these procedures as far as a definitive reconstruction should have a pair of loops, Uh, Alternatively, being able to obtain proximal and distal control and even place a shunt is our key steps to at least get that far for somebody to come in then perform the definitive repair. Placing that shunt or getting the proximal and distal control stops the bleeding and then placing the shunt decreases the warm ischemia time. So let's say we're able to reconstruct it. I would then assess the size of the vessel and if we're able to do an end-to-end in either a running or interrupted fashion. I think most of the times I would do it in a running fashion, if need be to perform either a bevel or a spatulated and, and anastomosis.
2: If we need to place a shunt, what should we use?
1: So the most common shunts are the argyle shunts. They come in a tubing that's essentially like uh, what we use in the clinic for silver nitrate sticks. They are soft, they're pliable, have smooth edges. They come in a variety of sizes. The pack has an 8 French, a 10 French, a 12 French, and a 14 French shunt. And so they can be placed in a variety of vessels. In this case, in the, in the forearm, it probably doesn't need to be shunted. We have distal flow to the hand as long as we've proven that with a patent radial artery or pulmonary arch.
0: So same scenario, this guy really gets into it and he lacerates both radial and ulnar. Is there one we should repair, one we should just ligate?
1: So I've I've been in this situation and <clears throat> I have just assessed both of them and figured out which one was larger one or the easier one to repair, and started with one, and then ensure that there was the intact Palmer arch, then reassess the patient's physiology after that if proceeding with another repair was absolutely necessary or not.
0: So let's say this guy, he he really puts his weight into it, and he puts his fist through the glass and lacerates his brachial artery. What do we do? How do we manage proximal distal control?
1: That incision is going to be a, a, an incision along the bicipital groove in the uh, medial aspect of the arm. And then if we need to extend it either proximally up in a curvilinear incision along the deltopectoral groove, or distally in a curvilinear incision across the antecubital fossa, in that, attacking that injury, getting proximal distal control with vessel loops and or some vascular clamps.
0: So then once you have proximal distal control, how do you repair these?
1: I would, again, my latter approach to this would be to do a, assess the injury for a primary repair. If there was some loss of distance or gap there, I would dissect to mobilize the artery. I could probably get about a centimeter mobilization to do a primary repair because that's going to be have the longest patency rate of a artery to artery in the end. To end as opposed to having two anastomoses and a vein conduit. So I would start with assessing for a primary repair and and an artery-to-artery. And that usually can be done in these scenarios with a clean laceration from an individual who put the upper extremity through a window or has a clean laceration from a knife. Different than Mm -hmm. a gunshot wound, those usually have a surrounding blast effect that would really be required to have a uh, debridement and then reassess, because that wound is going to be bigger than on initial presentation.
2: So I think that'll lead us well into our next scenario. So next scenario is healthy 40-some year old male who comes in with a gunshot wound to the mid-thigh. Tourniquet is in place in the trauma bay, but every time you release it, bring them to the OR, every time you release it, you get pulsatile bleeding from the wound. How do we approach proximal and distal control in this scenario?
1: I think one thing, we can't have a vascular trauma talk without this at least mentioning hard signs of vascular injury, which this patient has. So he has arterial bleeding or pulsatile bleeding. Other things would be expanding hematoma, palpable thrill, audible brewery, or arterial occlusion with pulselessness or paresthesias, pain, paralysis, poiculothermia, pallor. So he clearly has a hard sign of a vascular injury, which mandates exploration in the operating room and not further radiologic investigation. Dr. Freiberg was instrumental in really having a paradigm shift in how we manage these patients. So in the operating room, I would again with these vascular injuries, it's it's important to attack the injury. I would get proximal control just above the area of the injury. So again, there's a hole in his thigh. I'm going to go right there. I'm not one to make an incision in the groin and then make an incision in the distal thigh and then make an incision in the middle thigh, which almost creates one big incision. I would just attack the wound, get <clears throat> proximal distal control there with vessel loops and vascular clamps. Care not to clamp too hard because that can cause or the vascular cl- uh, vessel loops can cause injury, endothelial injury. And then evaluate the wound. Is this an artery-only injury? Is this an artery and vein injury? And then I would, because this patient had a tourniquet in place and the functional outcome is going to be best with decreasing the warm ischemia time, I would place a shunt, stop, and think about reconstruction options and how I'm going to sequence those reconstructive steps.
2: Once you have that shunted, talk us through what are the options.
1: Let's say that there is an artery and vein injury, and it's distal SFA, proximal popliteal. I mean, that's the popliteal vessels are gatekeeper vessels, and those really should be reconstructed. The limb salvage rate for venous reconstruction in that area is greater than it is if there's ligation. So I would shunt both the artery and vein. I would use the biggest shunt for the vein that we have, probably an Argyle shunt, 14 French, next biggest size for the artery. And then I would immediately do a four compartment fasciotomy to decompress the leg. Then I would harvest the greater saphenous vein from the contralateral lower extremity. And of course, anytime there's an injury to the lower extremities. I'm prepping the patient from definitely above the umbilicus all the way through to the toenails, making sure that the patient's on the table to be able to do any sort of angiogram that is needed. Because these patients, after any reconstruction, mandate a completion angiogram.
3: Curveball for you, David. Just uh, not an uncommon scenario. Combined orthopedic and vascular injury. So the sequencing. And, you know, which which team goes first? Is the orthopedic X-fix, hammers, and chisels going to disrupt or vascular repair? Or would you revascularize initially and then address the skeletal injury? So there's been evidence in the recent past about how we should sequence these. So how, how what's your approach in terms of the So in this scenario, a shattered mid shaft femur fracture combination with a concomitant SFA injury. What's your approach?
1: My approach is the... Trauma surgeon goes first, gets proximal and distal control, places a shunt. We've now decreased warm ischemia time. And then orthopedics will place their skeletal frame to provide a a platform, get the patient the extremity out to length. And then I would reassess the the size of the defect and then plan my interposition, likely vein uh, conduit.
0: If you have a GSW to the thigh. Is this a dirty wound?
1: So it's least contaminated, and depending on how much devitalized tissue or debris from the environment is in the wound, obviously cleaning the wound as best as we can. Vein conduit, uh, autogenous vein is the best conduit, preferably contralateral greater saphenous vein that's reversed would be the best option. And if that is inadequate, or unavailable a PTFE graft is acceptable in these extremities their patency grade and infection rate is lowest in the torso however they are uh, have been successfully utilized in the extremities Dr Feliciano probably had the landmark paper on that that really showed that they can be used with success what I would use and when I used to PTFE is I use a ring PTFE just because of its reinforcement and to prevent long-term narrowing.
2: After these repairs, whether they be primary repairs or graft repairs, what is the anticoagulation that we need to be putting these patients on and for how long?
1: So afterwards, most commonly is aspirin. And we showed that in the multi-institutional prove database. That was one of the first uh, studies that came out of that working group looking at the practice patterns of vascular trauma is aspirin. And really the reason the biology behind that is that there's an unendothelialized suture line. So having an antiplatelet medication to help prevent any, which that unendothelialized suture line is a thrombogenic, having an antiplatelet medication to help reduce the thrombus formation is helpful. In concomitant artery and vein injury, I would systemically anticoagulate, primarily for the vein injury to increase the patency rate and treat that as if it were a DVT, so somewhere around three to six months. And intraoperatively, I usually just use regional heparinized saline as opposed to s- systemic anticoagulation. With an isolated injury, the systemic anticoagulation may reduce some of the in situ thrombus, especially in the lower extremities. But for the most part, regional heparinization is adequate. Now, neither one substitutes for a technically sound dissection and reconstruction.
3: David, you you mentioned fasciotomy, and that's a great point. I heard about this cool one-incision fasciotomy. Any thoughts on that?
1: It's a bad idea. The definitive fasciotomy is a four-compartment fasciotomy, a two-incision, four-compartment fasciotomy that really releases the anterolateral compartments as well as fully releases the posterior, superficial, and deep compartments. These are long incisions, like 20, 25 centimeters, with full release of the fascia to fully release those muscle compartments. This is not a minimally invasive procedure. The other thing is that those muscles are going to bulge. We want them to bulge. So I'm also not a proponent of closing the skin after the fasciotomy or... Doing any sort of vessel loop closure, because to me, it's counterproductive. We've just released everything to allow the muscles to expand as much as possible. And then we're now putting on some sort of device to restrict that to some point. Release all of it, let it bulge, let it swell, and then over time, it'll decompress and the patient will have a wound and we'll figure out how to get it covered, whether that's in a delayed primary fashion or if it's a skin graft. Either way is it's fine as long as the patient has a, we salvage their limb, but if we close the skin or do vessel loops and they lose their limb, we, we really haven't made a good decision.
0: So now we have a patient with a GSW to the mid-abdomen. We ex-lab, intraperitinosis is okay, but there's a zone one hematoma. Do you
1: explore
0: it? What do you do with this?
1: So absolutely explore penetrating zone one injuries. They mandate exploration.
2: Can you talk about exactly how you get to that area?
1: So the classic maneuver to get to the aorta is a left medial visceral rotation, taking on the white line of TOLT on the left and mobilizing structures, the intraperitoneal and retroperitoneal structures medially. That includes mobilizing the left kidney up and medial as well as the spleen.
0: If you're going to look for the aorta, you would take the kidney and spleen up,
1: so the classic left medial visceral rotation that mm-hmm. Dr. Maddox is, and his name has been associated with, his initial drawings, he brought the spleen and kidney up and medialized both of those. And that okay. gives us the entire aorta from the crus of the diaphragm all the way down to iliac. the iliac. And the right medial visceral rotation, taking on the right li- white line of told on the right, mm-hmm. will give us good access to the inferior vena cava. One potential thing to consider Although not supported by the literature, but one could think that approach the left side first and identify the aorta. Uh, there could be some mild compression on the a potential cable injury from all that medial visceral rotation, could, which could be helpful. And the cable, I'm sorry, the aortic injury is going to be the one of to fix first. The vascular approach of so somewhere like an aortic aneurysm of a transperitoneal pro- approach is an option as well. However, it's, but the medial visceral rotations would be my first choice.
2: So can you talk us through if there's an aortic injury, what do we do now?
1: So I would get proximal and distal control. I'd also look to see its relationship to the renal vein, particularly the left renal vein, and care with clamping because sometimes that left renal vein is retroaortic, and it can be inadvertently injured with clamping in that area. Debris the injury, especially if it's a gunshot wound, and then figure out the size of the defect if I'm able to primarily repair it with something like a, a heavier suture than that 7.0 that we used on the brachial artery. But for the aorta, it would be something like a 2.0 or 3.0 monofilament proline and then repair it. And I would do that either interrupted or running would be fine.
3: In terms of, again, associated injuries, so if you have a hollow viscous injury with, with abdominal. Spillage, any tips and tricks you can give us as far as isolating, protecting that repair? How would you isolate these suture lines?
1: After repair these retroperitoneal structures, I'd reapproximate the peritoneum to get those cavities isolated, as well as develop vascularized or mental flap to oppose over those suture lines and that arterial repair.
0: So let's say it's a busy trauma night, and we have a stab wound or a gunshot right lower quadrant. Isn't there something about some anatomy that we need to know about? Can you review that for us?
1: Sure. The right common iliac artery can be transected and mobilized to get better access to the right common iliac uh, or an internal iliac vein. That is an option. I would say the steps of that are going to be dissection of those iliac structures and care to identify the ureter that's gonna be crossing over the iliac artery, transecting that iliac artery cleanly, identifying the iliac vein injury, and then assessing whether that's gonna be a ligation or that could be a simple venorophy. I would say it's a reasonable thing to keep in our armamentarium and things to think about as we are approaching that area or an injury in that area. If we're having difficulty identifying it, to be able to work through that in our mind, and say, okay, it's time to transect this. It seems aggressive, but if it's going to be life-saving to stop the bleeding, we need to do it. And then it would be a uh, clean injury, and then I would repair the, the iliac artery with like a 4-0 proline. In this case, if, if we ligated the iliac vein, I would, I would do a four-compartment fasciotomy. That patient's likely going to have a lot of swelling, is at a risk of limb loss. And then after that, iliac uh, repair and reperfusion for which we could place a shunt during that time period as well, do a completion angiogram and and make sure there isn't any distal emboli that could compromise limb salvage.
2: As we're talking about ligation, can you just remind us what's the biggest vein and the biggest artery that we are able to ligate?
1: We can ligate anything. We have to stop the bleeding. So (laughs) nothing is off the table. Ligate it. Stop the bleeding then reassess what did we just ligate and then figure out how to fix it
3: and that includes
1: <laughs> even for example the portal vein survivor ranges of that are somewhere between 60 to 85 percent with a ligated portal vein with a patent hepatic artery so that is compatible with life they'll likely develop uh, some patchy bowel wall necrosis the, the bowel will become massively edematous and we just let it need to let them swell and then over time the there will be venous collaterals over the subsequent days, and, and then we just address the open abdomen how we see fit. But I would ligate anything, stop the bleeding, and then figure out what we ligated.
0: Like, can you literally ligate the IVC or the aorta?
1: Oh yes. So yes to really? the IVC.
3: <laughs> yes,
1: IVC can definitely be ligated. Uh, those in- individuals are going to develop massive lower extremity edema. Uh, doing at least bilateral four compartment fasciotomies, if not planning to do bilateral thigh fasciotomies. They will decompress over time. Wrapping the legs, compression stockings, elevating them can be helpful as well if there aren't signs of compartment syndrome. And these are full lower extremity thigh high compression stockings, wrapping them with ACE bandages and continuing to, again, facilitate venous outflow into the torso as the collaterals develop.
0: We have vascular rooms, and then we have the trauma room. Should we be using these hybrid rooms? Are they working sense in space? What's your experience with
1: this? So it's an interesting question because I work in a facility, and I have for a handful of years, and it is a safety counting net hospital, definitive care facility for the region, first level one trauma center in the state. We've been going now 37 years. We don't have a hybrid room. Mm -hmm. we have taken care of a lot of high complex vascular injuries. There are a lot of ways to do this and do it with a set of vascular instruments and angiocath and being able to do a lot with some of the basic vascular tools that we've had for a long, long time. That being said, endovascular therapy is emerging, and its role, especially in junctional zone injuries, is advantageous. However, many of these injuries can be managed and cared for without a hybrid room. Practicing the basic principles of vascular surgery and vascular trauma, and these patients can have good outcomes.
3: Yeah, I agree. You know, I, you know, obviously, I work in the same place as David, and I, maybe it's an unpopular opinion. I, I do think the hybrid room is a little overrated for what we do. I, I mean, it's great if you have it. But it shouldn't limit you um, to not do things. All you need is a floor a table and a C-arm, and it, it offers you more flexibility and versatility. That you're not kind of limited to one location. You may have more than one in some institutions. But just to make sure that you have the appropriate, because that happened to me. David probably remembers. If they're setting up a room for an elective case, they may not have the appropriate uh, equipment or table, and then you're, you know, wasting precious time. So just to make sure that every, really every trauma case you do particularly that involves a vascular injury, particularly peripheral vascular injuries, are on a, a floral capable operating room table.
0: Well, this has been yeah. a, a great trauma cast. And David, thank you so much for joining us and, and my co-host. I think we're all in some intense situations where we have to meet the needs we aren't usually used to doing, and vascular might be one of them. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for the invitation and I enjoyed our discussion.
0: And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the EAST Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.